Last week, we spoke about being back in the saddle again. They're now working on the temple. Uh, how did it happen? Did they just get up enough gumption? They just pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps? No. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God spurred them on in the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah, and they flew. And the people work on the temple. They actually don't even have approval. A guy named Tatanai, who doesn't seem to be an enemy of the Jews, but he reports them to Darius and said, I don't know what they're doing, but huge rolling stones, they're building something here. And um, he, by God's grace, he lets them continue, and the Jews keep building the temple. Today, we're going to hear good news. We're going to hear that Darius... God has turned his heart the way he turned the heart of Cyrus decades earlier. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit about where we're going today. First off, the temple. The temple is going to be finished and dedicated. Why is it so important? Beyond the fact if it's important to finish what you started, but what is it about the temple? Well, you'll miss it if I don't ex kind of explain this a little bit. The temple is the symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament. As he dwelt among his people, there's the temple. The Shekinah glory would be rising up above and people would know uh, that God is there. Well, some of you might scratch your heads and go, wait a second, isn't God omniscient? I mean, not just omniscient, is he not omnipresent? Well, of course he is. And yet God so ordained a temple to be a special presence among his people and it really encouraged them. John Calvin talked a little bit about this, and he had said, you know, God limited himself to our capabilities, and through the temple, he spoke to his people in baby talk so that they would go, oh, yes, his special presence is here with us so that they could understand. Well, we know the New Testament, that's when Christ came, and he came as the true temple of God, the one who was set apart, the God-man, and he walked with his people. And the presence of God walked among the earth. Well, when you look at today, where's the temple now? Well, it's not a place. It's a people. We are the temple of God. So you'll hear me often refer to this place that we meet called the auditorium. And you go, why does he say that word auditorium? Well, it's because ultimately the word sanctuary is a Latin word, sanctus. It means holy. Well, who's the sanctuary of God? It, we are, and this is where the church meets. And so you'll hear me say that from time to time. You can call it a sanctuary, call it what you will. But the point of it is, is that ultimately we are the temple of God in the New Testament. We see in the future, there actually is no temple in heaven. When you go to heaven, you go, you know, I just want to be in that kind of sacred, holy place. Where is that temple? You're not going to find it. The uh, Bible says in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We will be with the Lord. We will have the reality, so the symbol is no longer needed. So we're going to take a look at the temple today, but one other thing I'll, I think you'll see kind of sown throughout the text is the joy, the joy that the Lord gives in this text specifically this chapter. There was a critic of Christianity who was also a famous writer named H.L. Mencken, and he wrote this. He said, a Puritan is a person who suffers from an overwhelming dread that somewhere, 
Sometime, somehow, someone may be enjoying himself. (laughs) Well, the fact of the matter is that is kind of a made-up caricature. Because if you know the Puritans, they were the same ones that wrote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is not just glorifying God, but it's actually enjoying him. Happy in the Lord. You see, God, sometimes we fail to note this, God created joy. He created laughter. He actually wants believers in particular to be joyful. And not just in our hobbies, which we enjoy, and those are God's gifts, and not just in family, um, whatever. Whatever may make us happy, but ultimately it has to be found in the Lord. Why? Because all created things fail, and God is the one thing that does not fail. So we find our joy in him. And you know, there's so many scripture verses. I'm only gonna give you seven. I could give you many more than that. Deuteronomy 12 When God says, when you go into land, there you shall come and you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice. He actually commands them to rejoice. And then he says, and if you've got those verses, go ahead and throw them up there. At the end in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47 and 48, he he is going to eventually judge them. And one of the reasons that he judges his people, he says, you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. He wants his people to be joyful. Uh, Psalm 5, 11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then in Luke 10, we see Jesus, uh, the ministry looks a little bit frayed, to many of the apostles because we notice that he is reaching the harlots and the tax collectors and many of the common people, but who's not following him? The, the wisdom of the age, the people, the people of high position by and large are not following him. And what does Jesus do in regards to the Lord's will? Listen, in that same hour, Christ rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. When Jesus looked at his ministry and saw that many were rejecting him, he's like, yes, that's the Lord's will. And so I'm gonna rejoice in this. John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy, apostles, may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, does that actually play itself out in the New Testament? It does. In Acts 5, verse 40 and 41, when the apostles, when they called them in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. When they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Did y'all know one of the key components of drawing people to Jesus Christ in the early church? It was the love that the saints had for one another. And you know what the other one was? Joy. Joy, even in the midst of persecution, yea, even death. And finally, Philippians 3.1, just to give you one more. Paul will write, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Safe. It's this Greek word, uh, sphalo. Sphalo means to cast down. 
But when you put an A in front of the follow, it, uh, it means just the opposite of. Like for instance, a believer, what do you put in front of a believer's name so that it makes it just the opposite and negatizes it? Unbeliever. Um, you can do this with anything. You put un in front of it. Sometimes you can put D-I-S in front of it, disbelieve or believe. In Latin, it's, in Greek, it's just the opposite. They would put an A, not a U-N. And so what the idea is this, it is safe for you to rejoice in the Lord. What would the opposite of safety be? Dangerous. You know what it's dangerous? It's dangerous not to find your joy in the Lord ultimately. It's dangerous. But Paul says it is safe. Let me give you three caveat questions and then we'll dive right into this text because some of you are going, wait a second. What about, what about? And so I'll give you those. Number three, aren't there times for us to be sad? Yes, of course. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 makes it clear that we, there is a time to weep and we should weep. Christ wept. So don't let people say, you can't weep. You have to be rejoicing all the time. No, there's times to weep. Uh, we even see in Re- uh, Romans 12, 15, we weep with those who weep. Uh, another question, number two, aren't there some persons who are naturally more happy due to a sanguine personality? Yes. And you people, you know who I'm speaking of, don't y'all start judging others that aren't as sanguine, okay? That ain't, that ain't right. So we consider that. It's not like you're godly or something, okay? All right. Number three, what about those people who have lived a harder life? And certainly you have to take that into consideration that it's harder for some people to rejoice. They've been through quite a bit. And yet, quite frankly, I've seen some people that have had much harder lives and they can be much happier than others. So my point in saying all this is that the questions are good, the caveat is helpful, but rejoicing, y'all, is a command. It's a command of the Lord. Yes, we actually can fake it till we feel it. Because why? Because joy is a gift of the Lord. Galatians 5 makes it clear it's a fruit of the Spirit. Only God can supply joy at the end of the day. And yet, somehow, he also tells us, you need to rejoice as well. So the human responsibility there as well as the divine enablement. Okay, let's go ahead and dive into the text. Ezra chapter six, verse one through five. Then Darius the king made a decree, and the search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. In an ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found in which this was written, a record, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of the king, Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Spoke about this, oh, a couple of weeks ago. Is this the same Darius as found in the book of Daniel? Well, he's called Darius the Mede and Daniel, and here he's called Darius the Persian. It could be the same. We're not certain. But 
here's the way it works. They tried, they sent out a, a team to go find the edict in Babylon, Cyrus's edict. They couldn't find it. So they went to Ekbatana, and you're going, why did they go to Ekbatana? I've never been to Ekbatana, but why go there? Well, the way it works is the historian Xenophon, he writes that Cyrus lived in Babylon during the winter. He lived in Susa, the, the town of Susa in the spring, and then he lived in Ekbatana in the summer, which is in modern-day Iran, and had much higher altitudes in that area, and it made it actually cooler. So here in Ekbatana, they find this. Now, it's interesting, this memo here that they're writing has details that the edict did not. It, it has dimensions. We don't read that earlier in Ezra. It's 60 cubits by 60 cubits. Uh, that is 90 feet by 90 feet. That is two times as high and three times as wide as Solomon's temple. What's going on there? Well, maybe Cyrus was giving the limits. Like, I'll, I'll give you funds for this temple this large, but I'm not going any bigger than that. So he, he may have made it larger uh, or actually considered that it would be larger than it actually was. And the Jews came back and built it just like Solomon built it. Let's continue on verse 6 through 10. Now, therefore, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Literally in the Aramaic, uh, be distant. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven. Now, stop there. Y'all look up at me. He's going to list several things that you would need for sacrificing. I just want you to know that as I kind of fill in the blanks. All right, back to the text. Uh, wheat, that's used for grain offering. Salt, which was added to all the offerings. Uh, wine, which is drink offering. Or oil, which is burnt offering. And it's also used for anointing the priest. As the priest at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. That last part I'm going to mention first. A pagan king is saying, build your temple, and by the way, pray for me. Strange, isn't it? By the way, this is a great tactic to use if you ever want to witness to your, to your uh, waiter, waitress, to say, hey, we're about to pray over the meal. Anything I'm going to pray for you about? Some of you may do this already. It, it's, it's not a tactic. It's, it's just basically loving your neighbor, and it's a great way to, to do that. You don't follow the legalism. Oh, I have to do this every time. No, no, no. But many times what I found out is the waiter or waitress will go, yeah, actually you can pray for me. And here's how. Um, people seem to have an understanding according to just human nature, there is a God. And they figure somebody's got to be listening up there. And so that's what we have here. And by the way, if you do that, you're welcome to eventually, uh, I've had waiters, waitresses come back to me and ask me about that, and I can, I can even share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So, uh, but don't take them away from their job, just to be clear. 
And make sure and tip your waiter if you're gonna do that, okay? <laughs> Don't be cheap. Verse eight, he says, what you are to do for these elders of Judah, he tells them the full cost is to be paid from the royal treasury out of the taxes beyond the river. So they get word to Tatanai and all those people living in Egypt and the old country of Israel and now Judah, and they're saying, y'all are gonna pay for the temple. Fascinating. It's not gonna cost the Jews one penny. The government is gonna pay for the temple of God. And he mentions all these things that need to be given to them, given to them daily without fail. Why does it say that? It needs to be done day by day because, folks, these people are worshiping day by day by sacrificing. This is what the Old Testament Jews did. You would sacrifice every day. Uh, what about for us as believers of the new covenant? Don't we, don't we sacrifice? Well, I guess I would answer that by saying no and yes. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, regarding no, Christ is our Passover lamb, and he has been sacrificed. We, we don't actually slit the throats of the animals and put them out there anymore. We don't do that anymore. Um, all those Old Testament sacrifices were symbols of what was going to happen one day when the real, true Passover lamb would die. And yet at the same time, do we sacrifice? Well, of course we do. Romans 12:1, we are called to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Uh, so it's living sacrifices. Uh, but what does die? Our dreams, our desires, our plans. We sacrifice them all to Lord, what do you want from me? At the end of the day, that's what we want. And the problem is, and you've probably heard this before, the only problem with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar. <laughs> we can do that pretty quick. So I think we, it's this idea we do this daily. This is a constant thing that we should seek to do. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Didn't you love that song the kids sang? That was rich theology. I'm not my own. I'm not my own. We have to tell ourselves that every day. Verse 11 and 12, and also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence." So I want you to catch the name of God. I think maybe you saw it, verse 12. The God who has caused his name to dwell there. There had to be a Jewish scribe who was, who was telling them what to write because that phrase comes straight out of Deuteronomy many times. It comes out of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles that this is the Lord's place. And so it's fascinating that God would do that. I, I, I think most assuredly you've got a Jewish scribe who's, who's including this or somehow playing his role in this. But what happens if people decide to, you know, let's just go against this decree that Darius said. Let's just do it different. Let's, let's take this temple away from the Jews. Well, Darius says he will be impaled. Impaled, that's a, that's a Persian practice. It, it, what they would do is they would take a piece of wood and sharpen it. And they would insert it through the chest or 
other places, and it would pierce the lungs to the throat. It's a horrible way to die. Um, According to Herodotus, Darius I impaled 3,000 Babylonians when he took Babylon. So what's interesting, though, the poetic justice, did you catch it? Where are we going to find this stick of wood? Let's get it from his house. So your own house is playing a role in killing you. So you don't mess with God's people here. And not on top of that, but we see that the house would become a dunghill, which means it would become a sewer. So this was harsh, to put it lightly, a harsh sentence upon those that would dare stand against uh, this decree that Darius had written out. And I think what you see ultimately is this, is the most powerful man in the world is the Persian king. And he's nothing but putty in the hands of our God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases, wherever he pleases. And I think you also see this, if Tatanai had not reported this to the government, uh, the Jews would not have received this much money to rebuild the house. It now costs them nothing. Cyrus had said, in essence, the same thing, but Darius adds more to it and said, let's give these people things to sacrifice as well, animals and things of this nature. And it reminds me of what Joseph, when he looked at his brothers and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Verse 13 through 15, then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. If you're wondering what the date is, that's roughly March 12th, 516 BC. So the way it works is like this. Four and a half years after Haggai's first sermon, the temple is done. And, and wouldn't you know it, go figure, it's actually 70 years after the destruction of the temple. What are the chances? This is exactly what Darius, or rather what Jeremiah said, 70 years 70 years, and certainly that is the case. Uh, one other aspect I'll mention is this. Question, was the temple built by, by decree of the God of Israel or by the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes? Stop, don't answer, because I, I don't want to correct you. It's, it's, it's actually both, strangely enough. Ultimately, yes, it is the Lord, but... Uh, one of the a Welshmen named Derek Thomas, who's a commentator, he writes this, God makes his will of events come to pass in such a way that humans and the cosmos act in accordance with their natures. So what I mean is this, why was Judas the betrayer of Jesus? Was it because God is omniscient and Judas was chosen before the foundation of the world to be the one? Or was it Judas completely choosing on his own, in his own uh, human responsibility, choosing to uh, betray Jesus and sell him out. Which one was it? And you'd say, yes, or both. 
It has to be. Why? Because this is the way the Lord does things. When he brought you to himself, you didn't come kicking and screaming. I know some of you may have said that, but the way it works is God changed your heart. He took out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. And all of a sudden, you read about Jesus and you go, I like this guy. Whereas beforehand, eh, right? Continuing on, verse 16 through 18, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. So here they are celebrating the dedication. You know that word. You know that Hebrew word dedication, don't you? And you say, I don't know that word. And I say, you do know that word because I think you've heard of the word Hanukkah before. That's our word. Um, They're dedicating the temple. And you go, well, is that what, is Hanukkah this celebration? And I would say, um, not exactly. Because what happens, that word Hanukkah or dedication, later it became the name of this winter festival in honor of the temple's recapture and rededication from the Seleucids 350 years later. If you've never read the story of Hanukkah, it's a great um, celebration. And it actually is a very, even though it's not written in the scripture, it's the 400 years before Malachi and Jesus. Um, It's fascinating what the Lord did. You read it on your own. But for right now, we see they're offering 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and you go, so many. And I would say, no, it's actually very modest compared to Solomon, who offered more than 200 times as many animals, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So they're not the Israel they once were, but they are back in the land. And what they are doing is they are now offering a sin offering for all Israel for 12 goats. Why would they offer 12? There's really only Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Well, once again, these exiles considered themselves, and rightly so, to be the restored nation of Israel. These are God's people here. And so they're going to do this as it is written in the book of Moses. Important to note, the reestablishment of Israelite life under the Old Testament law, depended upon reestablishment of the worship. You got to worship rightly. And that's what we have here. And they're actually doing a sin offering. The sin offering is a continuous reminder of their sin before the Lord. Y'all might catch this sometimes from me. I will say, you are, you are saved by a great Savior. And we're going to see this at the Lord's Supper today. And And yet at the same time, let's make no mistake, I'm looking at a bunch of sinners who are also saints, but Paul says, I am the chief, present tense, of sinners. And you go, why would you remind somebody of being a sinner? That's negative. Well, here's the thing. Can you have a savior? What is the savior for? He's just not here to make you happy. He's here to save you from sin. And not just at your justification, but from here on out, making you more and more like Christ. So it's a good reminder, and we even see this in the Old Testament. They're having this sin offering. It's a reminder. 
to, to rejoice, not in their sin, but the fact that the Lord is covering their sin, preparing them for one day a savior who would take away that sin. Finally, verse 19 through 22, we have three weeks after the dedication of the temple, we have the Passover. Along with the Passover, you have something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It followed the Passover, and, and really it was put together kind of as one large celebration. Let's take a look at what it happened. Verse 19 through 22, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their, returned, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord, catch this, had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Okay, they're celebrating the Passover, and you say, okay, but you should note this. It's been 70 years since they celebrated the Passover. Looking from our direction, since 1953. That's 70 years ago. Um. Why had they not celebrated in Babylon? Because the Bible's so clear in Deuteronomy 16, the celebration has to take place in Jerusalem. It has to be there. And so we see in Exodus 12, at the very first Passover, God will say, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Real quick, let's go back to the time of the Exodus, or even beforehand. Moses is sent let my people go, he and Aaron. Um, Pharaoh says, no way. And every time, there's nine plagues. Finally, on the 10th plague, God says, Pharaoh's gonna let you go this time. Um, and he tells him that he's gonna take his firstborn. Remember, God has always called Israel his firstborn. Not because the firstborn is better, but in, in biblical terminology, that's the prize, Okay, and so we have that. And so God says, you've messed with my firstborn enough. I'm gonna take your firstborn. He's gonna do that to everybody, Jews uh, or Israelites and Egyptians straight across the board unless they do what? Put blood on the doorpost of that lamb. Now, some of us have not studied the Passover in some times. Maybe you never have. So I'd like to just kind of give you a little bit of, of what that would look like. It's not near as clean as you think or perhaps as neat, if you will. So the way it works is like this. You would take a one-year-old unblemished lamb from your flock on the 10th day of the month. Now, the Bible's very clear. You had to that lamb had to live in your house for four days. Why? The Bible doesn't tell you why, but in some ways, it certainly would be much easier for you to get up, you dads, early in the morning, go ahead and kill the lamb, and so your kids never get to see it, you go out to the flock and you take it in. But no, 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 no. You have to bring that lamb into your house. So that lamb might be sleeping with your kids at night. Or maybe eating from your hand. He's right next to you. They didn't have big houses. Why would the Lord do that? Well, there's many reasons. I can give you a couple. Number one, perhaps to show us the seriousness of sin. 
That as you looked on that little sweet lamb, you think something has to die for my sin. And this is painful and he's so cute, but something has to die. And it's either me or it's him. And the Lord in his kindness, in his incredible mercy is allowing me a way to live but something has to die for my sin. That's how serious sin is. That's how wicked sin is. So, something else to note is Jesus Christ is also called, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover Lamb. And so perhaps there's some foreshadowing going on here that just in the same way the Lamb would live with the people for four days, the Lamb of God one day would live with his people for 30-something years Why would he do that? Well, maybe because Hebrews 2 says he had to be made like his brothers in all ways, that he had to go through the toddler years, that he had to become a teenager, that he had to become a man one day so that he was able to help us when we suffered as he himself went through temptation and suffered, that he became one of us. Continuing on, we see that this lamb was not only just used for for food for the family, but more importantly, as a substitute. One lamb for every 10 people. And at twilight, between four and six, the lambs were sacrificed. You would slit the throat. You can imagine the sights and sounds of what would happen. Now, keep in mind, at the time of the Exodus, the father was the one who had put the blood on the doorposts of the house. But here in Ezra, as they celebrate the Passover, and, and later on, after the first Passover, uh, the father would give the lamb to the priest, the Levites, who would kill the lamb. Another priest would catch the spilt blood and then would pass off the blood to another priest who would then cast the blood at the base of the burnt offering. The point being is that this one is dying. Its blood is being covered for you. At that point, they would... Uh, the, the lamb that was dead, they would hang on the walls of the court and they would flay it by the priest. The fatty portions would be removed and taken to the altar and burned up. The rest of the lamb was taken home and roasted and the family would eat it. And they would eat it after nightfall with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. I told you it's not near as clean and neat as you may have thought. But this is what the Bible says. And it was what was perhaps in some ways most important is after you've done all that, what are, you, what are you called to do? You talk to your kids about it. It's important. The Lord says you talk to your kids about it. It's important for them to note because the, the point of it is your children would ask, why are you doing this? It's almost directly out of scripture, that quote. When they ask you, why did you do this? You would tell them, son, In order to be saved, because you and I are wicked sinners, the only way to be saved is something has to die. And it should be you, and it should be me. But God has so loved us so much, he provided a way. Something else dies. So we don't have to die. Some of you think I'm explaining the gospel, and in some sense I am. Because that is the good news. Before you should leave here today, you should note this. You see, God sent his son, the one perfect Passover lamb, so that he would die, so we don't have to die. The Bible is very clear, the wages of sin is death. 
People, if you were to die here today, God forbid, but if you were to die here today without Christ, guess what? You pay for your sins. You see, it's either God's son or it's you. There's no third option of saying, well, the Lord, I'm sure he'll understand. I'll get up to heaven. I'll go, hey, I did some pretty good things here. No, he would look at you and say, you have rejected my only son, the only provision that would make you righteous in my sight. So come to him today. Who are these other folks? Who are these other folks? It says, who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them. Well, remember, when Nebuchadnezzar took all these people to Babylon, there were many Jews that left. They were left in the land. And while these other Jews had gone to Babylon for 70 years, they come back and they probably look at these other Israelites and said, I haven't seen you for 70 years. Why haven't you separated yourself out? from the peoples of the land. And so they do by God's grace. And then they observe the feast with joy. Literally, the Lord caused them to rejoice. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But note what he does. It says, he turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them. And at this point, some of you may be wondering, king of Assyria? I thought this is the king of Persia. Well, Assyria actually fell in 612 B.C., So what does that even mean? Well, he may be using this phrase to contrast the kings of Assyria in their hostility towards his people with the Persian king who showed them such kindness. Perhaps the Lord is saying, only I could turn the heart of king of Assyria and I turn the heart of the king of Persia. That's what I can do. So here we have the temple. And of course, some of you cynics are saying, well, of course they're rejoicing. They're in their temple, but not all is right. This temple is small and unimpressive. They're still in slavery to Persia. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no Shekinah glory above the temple. And yet, did you note, some of you may have, did you note what negative component was missing from 16 years ago when they first laid the foundation? It says some of the people were rejoicing and other people were weeping. Do you see this here? No, you don't. No, you don't. I think the people have learned their lesson. We need to find our joy in the Lord. And with this end of the chapter, you see the first half of Ezra is over. It began in chapter one, verse one, the Lord stirring up the spirit of Cyrus, and it ends with the Lord turning the heart of another king, Darius. And I would pray for anybody in here who has not yet known Jesus Christ, the Lord would give you a heart transplant today. So at the end of the day, our joy should be found in the Lord, not in our situations. Now, just to be clear, don't misquote me. Some of you love gardening. I don't know why. (laughs) Some of you have different hobbies. Some of you, you have these enjoyable things. All of us perhaps hope for the Cowboys to one day survive in the playoffs. But we have these things that we enjoy, and that's God's good gifts. And yet at the same time, we should say the Lord calls us to find our joy in him. So I'd like to give you 13 biblical ways. I don't just give you three points. Y'all are sharp. The Puritans would do this. Sometimes they would have 25, and you're like, how do you write all this down? But I'd like to give you 13 biblical ways to, to deal with lack of joy. It's not exhaustive. There's other places in Scripture but I can tell you this, 2 Peter 1.3 is true. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness 
through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The Lord has given you what you need. Not saying you never get down. Of course you do. Of course we get sad. But by and large, the Bible is just telling you, this is enough. And when you look outside of scripture, you're going to find yourself in trouble. So the first one I would give you is this, is, is pray to the Lord about it. Pray to the Lord about it. Do we, still, do we have that in the notes? If not, I'll send all this to you, okay? I think there's a way to do this. If not, hold Breck responsible. So number one, pray to the Lord about it, recognizing that joy is a gift of the Spirit. The Lord is the only one who can give joy. So why not ask him for it? Number two, read the scriptures. Read the word focusing on the promises of God. This is something I did not do growing up. And I'm telling you, younger kids, please listen to me. The promises of God are meant to be just soothing, encouraging, joy-making for you. So when we come across Romans 8, 28, that all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. The good word is the scriptures. Number three, confess your sins. Do y'all remember how sad David was when he was caught up in his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah? He'll, he'll tell you. In Psalm 32, verse one and verse three, he said, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. There are times that we hold to sin and we're like, I'm not gonna let this go. And the Lord keeps thumping on our chest and going, hey, you need to agree with me. This is wrong. And joy can come from that. So if we are willing to do that. So number three, confess your sins. Number four, be thankful for all things. I think you will note, I didn't say be thankful in all things. I said for all things. Why would you say that? Because that's what the Bible says. <laughs> Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the Bible calling us to when we give thanks for the painful things? I think it's showing us that we can, according to Psalm 37, 7, we can rest in the Lord because nothing can cross our plate today without the Lord's approval. Nothing. Number five, deal with the past. Deal with the past. Now, let me kind of explain this. Um, we mentioned this a while back, but some of us are always drawn to the good old days of the past. Oh, man, I wish I could go back. I wish I could, you know, so the good days. And the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7.10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. But some of us, it's not the, sin, it's not the good old days of the past. It's the sins of the past that we wish we could change. That's why we have so many of these movies, so I could just go back and fix things. And I would encourage you, I like what John Piper writes about this, because there are times where the Bible actually tells you to remember the depths from where you came from. Remember those sins. And then other times it tells you to forget them. So what should you do? And he has a good point. He says, um, he says if those remembrances of sins humble you, remember them. Some of us have forgotten what wicked people we are, so we should remember it. But if they paralyze you, forget them. 
Forget them if they paralyze you. You have been forgiven of all your sins. As far as the east is from the west, forget them. Okay? Number six, think about what God tells you to think about. Proverbs, or rather Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, if there's anything uh, lovely or admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know something we don't remind ourselves of enough? Question, what's the favorite delineation of Paul regarding Christians? What does he call us? You said, well, you just gave it away. No, I didn't. Christian is not it. Believer is not it. Saint is not it. It's this little phrase, in Christ. You are in Christ. So remember that. It's important to constantly remember. I'm in Christ. His future is my future. Number seven, talk to yourself. <laughs> You're saying, you're not getting that from Scripture. Oh, I am. Psalm 42, 5, David is saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Some of us have, have kept listening to the, our minds and saying, I, I guess I should listen because it goes through my head. And David's going, no, that's not true. Put your hope in God. Quit being so depressed, David. So he talks to himself. It's okay to do, don't do that all the time. But from time to time, yeah, we should. Number eight, spend time with God's people. When we get depressed, a lot of times we just remove ourselves. That is just the opposite of what the Bible tells you to do. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging more everyone as more as you see the day drawing near. You're here to stir up the body of Christ, and they're here to stir you up and make you more like Christ. So spend time with God's people. Number nine, serve others. Serve others. Acts 20, 35, Jesus says, in everything, or rather, Paul says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Serve others. By the way, psychologists will say the same thing. You just need to go out there and serve others. Help people. It, it helps you. That's the Lord's kindness. Number, number 10, exercise. Exercise. First Timothy 4, 8, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Certainly at the end of the day, godliness is what we shoot for. And yet we know that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit it's important for us to exercise. And we, listen, when you consider the early church, they walked everywhere. They didn't have cars to jump into. And by God's grace, many times the body, it seems, will release endorphins, which is very helpful for the sake of joy. So exercise. Number 11, get some sleep. A guy told me 20 years ago, sometimes the most godly thing we can do is go to bed. Now, some of you people don't need to hear that today. <laughs> but those that are... Deprived of sleep, Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Number 12, go out into God's creation. For some of you people that are struggling with allergies this spring, maybe you should wait till the summer, but 
It's important to go out into God's creation. Jesus actually tells us, Matthew 26 through 28, look, look at the birds of the air. Maybe you could, (laughs) allergy sufferers can look behind glass, but look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father provides for them. And then also look at the lilies. Observe how they grow. They do not toil or spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Psalm 8, verse 3 When I look at the heavens, the work of your hands, and see the stars and the moon. And then he goes on and says, what is man that you are acknowledging of him? Like, so it helps us. And then finally, number 13, at the end of the day, submit to God's will. Submit to his will. Some of us really struggle with that. It's hard to be an American because you think I can fix this thing. I can do this thing. And at the end of the day, Luke 10, 21, Jesus can say, and I quoted this earlier, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We're about to take the Lord's Supper in a second, but I really don't want you to miss this 13 points in the sense of you cannot glean really much from these 13 biblical ways or truths unless you are studying the scriptures, unless you're meditating upon it. This list is not meant to be taken out of their context. I encourage you to join Joseph as he's being sold into slavery or hunker down with David as he's hiding in a cave from King Saul or be with Paul as he's in chains in prison. You see, when we don't study actually what the scripture says and we're busy piggybacking off of others, we're gonna seek to find our joy outside of scriptures in ways that just helps us cope according to the ways of the world. And I'm gonna try to call you back again and again. It's the word, it's the word, it's the word. Why? Because God wrote the word. 